May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Whatever else you want to say about Jesus, you can say this for sure. He knows how to set the bar high, doesn't he? He says such absurd things as this. Whoever wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In other words, if you want to be my disciple, get ready for a rough life and embrace a brutal death. Or to the rich young ruler, he says. When he asks the question, what do I have to do to have eternal life? He says, sell everything you own, give it to the poor, come follow me. Okay. (laughs) And to one of his friends one time who says, Jesus, you really don't need to die. He says to him, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of people. He knows how to set the bar high. He apparently hasn't read, though, the book about how to win friends and influence people. Because he doesn't do things softly, does he? There's a, a, a TV show I was watching this week, and it had a, an interview with a, a new, uh, an author of a new book. Her name is Amy Chua. Perhaps you've seen it. She wrote this book called um, uh, the, um, oh, excuse me, the Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. That's what it's called, The Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. Let me tell you, moms, none of you will be getting it from your children at Mother's Day in May. I mean, the, no, none of our kids are buying this book for their parents. It's written as a memoir about the differences between the way Asian mothers typically raise their children and the way the Western mothers do the same. And it could be even parents. Um, And so the tiger mom, not to be confused with the cougar mom, which is a completely different animal, um, is a a, a memoir about exactly... I thought that was funny, by the way. uh, Is a memoir about, um, about an approach to parenting. And of course it is that. It is a memoir, not a how-to book, if we give her at least that much credit. In one part of the book, Ms. Chua says that her seven-year-old daughter, Lulu, one time was practicing the piano, trying to play a song, Little White Donkey. And she said, because she was doing so poorly, I made her skip supper and sit there for hours on end without giving her breaks for either the bathroom or to get a drink of water until she learned to play this song correctly. In another part of the book, I guess she says, when um, a child brought home an A-, she would... uh, She would tell that child that she could do better. A minus is not good enough. It needs to be an A. I don't know about you, but if my kid brings home an A minus, I kiss him right on the lips, you know. I'm I'm thrilled. She summarizes her book in saying this. The tiger mother approach isn't an ethnicity. It's a philosophy. Expect the best from your children and don't settle for anything less. I'll tell you what, I'm glad I'm not her kid, right? You know, I, I don't want to be, what about, you don't want that, right? You don't want to be part of that. I mean, isn't it good to be a pianist, to know how to play? I mean, do you have to be a concert pianist? Isn't it good enough to play the cello? Do you have to be a concert cellist? Do you have to be, a, 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 you know, an amazing professional at everything? What about the average Joes? I mean... What about the guy who, who sits in the bleachers and eats peanuts, drinks Miller Lite, and makes fun of the players on the field? Isn't there some place for him? I, I want to be that guy. It, how good is good enough? And I guess it depends on what, what you mean by good enough. Consider the phrase, perhaps you've even said this, 99.9% of the time, I mean, 99.9% of the time, that's pretty good. If a kid gets a 99.9% on the SAT or the ACT or her GPA is a 99.9%, I mean, we're talking valedictorian, we're talking top of the class, everything. When is that not good enough, though? Well, if hospitals 
had a 99.9% success rate, they would give 12 newborns to the wrong parents every day. That's too many. If footwear companies had a 99.9% accuracy rate, they would ship out 114,000 pair of shoes with the wrong sizes. You know, one nine, one and eight. The U.S. Postal Service would mishandle 18,000 pieces of mail every hour. The IRS, the IRS would lose two million documents this year. And by bad luck, it wouldn't be mine, although I would hope. Uh, publishers would publish two and a half billion books, or two and a half million books, excuse me, with the wrong covers. Webster's Dictionary would have 315 misspelled words in it. There are times when 99.9% is not good enough. And you know where I'm going with this, don't you? You know where I'm going. It's not good enough to be a good Christian, so says the Lord Jesus. And he begins this Sermon on the Mount by confronting us very much uh, in in a very frontal way with this issue of what is good enough. Now, a lot of people look at the, the Sermon on the Mount, this is which way we, we began right here this morning in the Gospel lesson. They look at the Sermon on the Mount and they say, listen, what Jesus is offering to us is an ideal. It's a goal to live up to that nobody can achieve. He offered the kingdom, we rejected it, and so here it is, just an ideal. Others say, no, it's really just a retelling of the Old Testament law. But it goes clear through the law, doesn't it, to the point of motive. And so it's not that either. Some would say, well, this is a Jewish pietistic way of life. In order to fully uh, apply this sort of uh, sermon to your life, you'd have to be a a Jew living in the first century. But I don't think that'll wash either. What what a friend of mine in Kentucky would say, that dog don't hunt. (laughs) I don't think that's right either. And so I push back against all of those interpretations. And I would say this, the Sermon on the Mount, I believe, Jesus offers for all Christians at all times. He means this to apply to all of us. The same one who said, come follow me, give up all your rights, and embrace a painful death, is the same one who said, blessed are the pure in heart. Now listen to the Beatitudes that he gives. Here are a list of the blessed bees, right? The poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, and the reviled. What I think Jesus wants you to know, and what I think... Matthew does carefully in this text is he contrasts them later with seven woes. The blessed, the the beatitudes, the blessed way of life is contrasted with the pharisaical way of life. And listen to me, the scribes and the Pharisees were not bad people. They were not immoral people. They were people who were conscientious, who tried very hard to live a righteous life. And yet Jesus had quite a bit against them. In Matthew 23, he picks up on the, 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 the seven woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven against people in their face. Contrast that with blessed are the poor in spirit. Matthew 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you travel across land and sea to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell. Contrast that with blessed are those who mourn. Woe to you, you blind guides, who, swear, who say that anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. Blessed are the meek. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill and cumin. You have these spices in your drawer, don't you? 
I, I see them. I only make one thing, and it's like spaghetti. So I use oregano and basil and rosemary. So I, and then I go through and I see all these spices. I'm like, what is this stuff for? I mean, I know that it's probably used for something, but I have no idea. So I, I, you know, I, pull, out the, I pull out the Italian spices. But if you're a little bottle of cumin, it's just tiny. And dill, a little dinky bottle. I think we've had the same dill bottle for a long time. I'm not sure. But I think it looks the same. Take a tenth of that out. Jesus says. You know, they like to give a tenth of that. But the things that really matter, the things that really matter, justice and mercy and faithfulness, they don't exist. Contrast that attitude with blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's an amazing difference. Well, blessed are the the merciful and the pure in heart and the peacemakers against those who who, uh, want to appear outwardly righteous and those who, who, who adorn tombs of the martyrs, but themselves are just a part of it. The Beatitudes are not an option. This is not an option for a way to live. This isn't an ideal for us to live up to. This is the expectation. This is the expectation that Christ has for all of us. And so how do you summarize the Beatitudes? What would you say about them if you looked at them? First of all, that they, they embrace an attitude of humility. Christ expects that all of us embrace an attitude of humility. And secondly, that we have a passion for God. Not that we like God. Not that we're okay with God. Not that we're even, yes, Sunday's a wonderful day. Isn't it great that we can get up and go to church? Not that. But an inward passion for God. And a determination to embrace even attacks against us in order to preserve that. Jesus is like a tiger mother. I mean, he has these huge expectations for us. And you may be saying to yourself, I'm not there. You know what? I'm not either. But that doesn't let us off the hook. The expectation remains. He expects us to have this attitude, this passion, this willingness to suffer on his account. And listen to me, this is not natural. Nobody's born with this. Nobody comes into this world saying, oh, I want to be humble. You know, I, I, I want God and God only. I'll suffer for the, for the sake of that. Nobody comes into the world that way. We actually all have a nature that's bent the opposite direction. So how is it that we get there? How will we ever get this attitude, this passion, this, this bending of our own will? Well, there's only one way. It is by the grace of God. We need God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And He has given us clear ways, clear means for which we obtain that grace. Right here. (laughs) Pick it up, open it, study it. It, It's right there. This is a means of grace to us. It will change our lives. We hear St. Paul say things like, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by by the renewing of your minds so that you can prove what is good and right and acceptable. The perfect will of God. Read that. I mean, make that part of our lives. That's the way we become transformed. We come to church just like we are now. We hear the, the scriptures read and proclaimed. We come to this altar with our hands empty. I mean, have you ever thought about that? You come up and you kneel and your hands are empty. And then the body of Christ comes into your hand. God's self-giving. He gives Himself to you, to me. Why?
Why? So that we can have a little dinky snack? No! It'd be a poor snack, wouldn't it? He gives himself to us because when we ingest this, this is a means of grace. He changes us. From the inside out, we become different people. Now, imagine, imagine the tiger mother, the tiger father, who demands their child learn to play piano, but doesn't give them lessons, or doesn't even give them a piano. Imagine a, a, a tiger father who demands that his son, his son study the Bible, but he doesn't teach him how to read. Or, perish the thought, give him a Bible. That's not a, that's not a disciplined parent. It's a tyrant. And God is no tyrant. What He expects of us, He gives us the means by which to accomplish. I went to Africa a few years ago, and um, I was there for three weeks help work building a church. This church was a building about this size and they had nearly a thousand people trying to get into a church this size. And so the windows on both sides would be open, people hanging out. I preached there. It was, it was an amazing thing to see. Crammed in, side to side on, this, on these little benches. Okay? And here these people are... So we built a new church. A church that in the U.S. would probably hold 2,000 people, um, but they probably plan to get about four or five into that. But we spent, I spent three weeks there working on this church with a group uh, from, from Ohio here. And I had a great time, a wonderful place, Africa. Got to go to Kruger Park while I was there, did a little holiday also. One of the things about Africa, though, the food was horrible. I was in Mozambique. The food was horrible. They had rice and greens with crushed peanuts. I mean, it was awful. I don't mean, I don't mean it was bad. I mean, it was awful. If I would be there for 40 years, I don't think I would ever develop a taste for this food. Um, and so, right here. Let me tell you what. I had some, a little bit of foresight. I packed my footlocker full of fruit snacks, granola bars, and Pop-Tarts. Okay? And so every night, I would eat as much as like was expected, you know, trying to hold it down. And then I would slip off to my room and be in culinary delight with a raspberry Pop-Tart. It was nothing better. And of course, I didn't want anybody to know that because I knew they would be trying to edge in on my Pop-Tart. So you know, here I am hiding in my room in the dark, trying to stuff this Pop-Tart down my throat real fast. If I'd be there 40 years, I'd never develop a taste for that. John Wesley said to the young Methodist preachers, he said, you should develop a love for reading or a love for another vocation. You know what? Jesus says to us, this is the way to follow me. This and none other. Amen.